watches in the fourth dimension. impressive than Barrett. Yes. I'm Anthony. I'm Don. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley. And I will continue the Don Praise train. Howdy humans. I'm so glad to be back with you. It's been quite a while. There were a lot of things that have happened in the interim in my personal life from the entire family getting COVID to personal things and whatnot. So we had to take a bit of a hiatus and now here we are. I decided that with the passing of the Queen of England recently, and totally coincidentally, obviously, the Dragon Con in Atlanta, that the perfect episode to come back with would be my interview with the Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. Theirs is a podcast that concentrates on Doctor Who, and specifically right now, for the last two to three years, they've been going through the original run of Doctor Who starting in 1963 and going through every single little episode, even the ones with missing episodes and whatnot. We did get into a little Doctor Who in this particular interview, but what I enjoy about them is their banter and the quality of their podcast. And so I decided that in keeping with our interviewing artists, that podcasting in these days is a pretty creative artistic venture, and I wanted to get their take on how that all works and plays out for them. They have become a relatively important part of my listening life. My eldest daughter is really into Doctor Who with me, and so we've been listening through. We're now quite a bit ahead of them in our watching, but it's still great to be reminded of the episodes that we watched a few months ago by listening to their podcast and their take on those episodes. They're hilarious. Uh, You should really definitely check them out. There will be a link to their podcast in the show notes, along with a couple of other things that were mentioned along the way in this podcast episode. So without further ado, here are the Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. There are days that might not be so great that I'll hop in the car and get to go for a drive with you guys, and and it certainly helps me. So maybe more help out there that you guys don't know is is going on. So that's so nice, Mike. Sorry, just just to interrupt <laughs> you. That's really nice to hear you say. That that, that means a lot, and I don't think any of us ever thought that what we've been doing might touch someone in that way. So that's really nice for us to hear. The car can be a lonely place. It's the sort of thing where you get some company going down the road, which is cool. Since my initial communication and whatnot has been with Anthony, you can kind of talk about who the Watchers are as a group. Great. Sounds good. All right, go for it. Who are you? All right. We are collectively known as the Watchers in Fourth Dimension. So that's myself, Anthony Williams, and my partners in crime, Don Smith, Riley Shrek, and Julie Philippak. And we are a podcast in which we are slowly but surely working our way through all of Doctor Who from 1963 hopefully until now or until wherever the heck the show is by the time we actually catch up with it. Right. 
probably sometime in 2035 at this rate. And we're kind of a bit of a motley crew that I brought together because I had just finished a part-time graduate degree, an MBA, and suddenly had some time on my hands that I felt kind of lost in. And so I reached out to three separate friends who did not know each other, who I thought might make an interesting podcast. And uh, Don, I had probably known the longest. I've known Don since about 2011, I want to say. Sounds about right. Just after I moved to the US and we were at a friend's party at someone's house and his phone went off and the the text message tone he had was a Dalek going, exterminate. <laughs> and I kind of attached myself to him at that point and basically said, we're friends now. Yep. And Don has not been able to get rid of me since. Haven't really tried. <laughs> Although it was was fun you know, hanging around at your first Dragon Con. Yes. And for yeah. any of your listeners out there that want a really fun thing to do, Take a Brit with a history degree to a Renaissance festival. Oh, <laughs> it's the best thing you'll ever do. Sounds like. Yeah. And so Don and I had a lot of history and a lot of fun times, but we had drifted a little bit, not hugely. I mean, Don was always someone I knew I could text and say, hey, I've got an emergency and he would be there in a heartbeat. But it had passed the point of us hanging out on like a weekly or biweekly basis. Julie and Riley, I met at a local Doctor Who convention uh, called originally it was called Timegate and then it rebranded to Who Lanta and I forget which of you I met when it was still Timegate and which of you I met when it was Who Lanta <laughs> but uh, that was a very fun sadly now defunct convention and Julie I, I met I was having a really really rough convention I was in the middle of a breakup and met Julie and her sister and had a really fun time just hanging out with them that convention. And then we hung out at the next Dragon Con as well. And we both started getting occasionally involved with another podcast called Earth Station Who, as well as its sister show, Earth Station One. So I knew that she was kind of interested in the whole podcasting thing. And Riley and I and Riley's wife and my girlfriend had struck up quite a friendship, having met at a convention, but finding we had a lot of different interests outside of Doctor Who. And I kind of already approached Don and Julie, and knowing Riley was in his own rewatch of classic Doctor Who, I guess it wasn't really a rewatch, a first-time watch. No, first watch, yeah. I, I kind of said, hey, um, I don't want to put a damper on you when you're in the middle of the Tom Baker <laughs> era, but do you want to maybe start again and talk through it with three other people on a podcast. And I'm very glad Riley said yes. And that's kind of how we all came together. And I thought that with the kind of different perspectives and the different senses of humor, that it all might mesh well together. And it's not quite what I originally thought it would be. I thought we'd be a little more academic about it than we've ended up being. But um, it's turned out to be a really good combination and a really good time. And I think we all bring different talents, different perspectives. We we all have corporate day jobs, so we all work similar schedules. Don and Riley are massive film guys. Julie's big into music. I've got the history side. Don was initially our techie, but he's kind of taught us all how to edit a podcast and we now take turns. <laughs> and I think between us, this group's just really meshed and turned into something really cool. I'll tell you that in terms of my lead up to right now during the course of the day, I've gotten actually more and more nervous 
not because I'm scared of you guys, but because you're very, very good at podcast banter. I was afraid I wouldn't be able to keep up. I can do banter in real life, but podcast banter still scares me a little. Well, and sorry to interrupt you then, Mike. Okay. I think, you know, we brought guests into the show from time to time. And I'm going to say this on air on your show. We'd love to have you at some point for a bonus episode. But I think in general, we've all taken a step back when we've had a guest on the show. And, and we would try and do the same on, on your show to really make sure that that additional person fits in and can work with the rest of the group as well. Whether that is giving them some extra consideration or whether it is, as we did with our friends on the rocks, even try and adopt a few elements of their podcast to varying degrees of success. Sure. Which gave me the idea of like how I want to put this thing together with you guys podcast. Let's do history stuff. And since you need a voice break, I'm just going to go in order of how I see you on the <laughs> screen here. So we'll go to Julie next. So um, who are you, Julie? You want a, a full history of Julie? I mean, you know, what kind of more the, the creative side, I know you were involved in music, you know, who are you now? What do you do? But also what Where led you to from? this lowly state? Yeah. All right. <laughs> yes. Lowly is what I'll call it with these guys. Um, so Not the life boy soap people. Music uh, has always been a big part of my life. It really started when I was really young and I'm a nineties kid. I'm going to age myself. and I'm going to age everyone else. Um, so yeah, you're welcome. Everybody. I'm the youngest and my dad was very adamant of introducing me to music that wasn't 90s because he was like, you need to know what good music is. And good music is the 60s and 70s. So yeah. we're going to start you off there. So that's how my music education started is I didn't listen to the Backstreet Boys until they were done. So um, I was a little bit behind there. Um but it was really good because I, I kind of got that experience. Then I went into band. I was in band from sixth grade all the way through college and even after college. Played flute the entire time. Flute and piccolo. I did a brief stint on the bass clarinet. So I'm... That's a change. Yes, that was a big change. I'm sure uh, they're good grief. <laughs> <laughs> that was um, my senior year of high school. And I was annoyed because as stereotypical as it is the flute section was all girls and I was like you know what there's too much drama involved <laughs> right here and one of my friends was the section leader of the low reeds because it was bass clarinets and tenor saxes he was like you could just come over to my side and just we can have fun and I'm not gonna lie it was a lot of fun especially because my bass clarinet was broken and I could only play below the, the break. So I, I played everything down. So I'm just like the entire time. It yeah. was wonderful. All the fun notes. All the fun notes. And in all that, my other passion was reading. So I read anything and everything underneath the sun and uh, really got into fantasy is probably my main one. Um, did some sci-fi. My grandfather was a big sci-fi fan. So he was the one who introduced me to Stargate. Uh, that was probably the first thing. And then Star Wars, I think, was second, um, which is a different approach than some others. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of how I got into all of that nerd stuff. Now, Doctor Who in particular, I was in college. So this was well after it had you know, already started up. One of my roommates was watching the episode The Satan Pit. And I happened to walk in just as David Tennant was giving his like big giant speech. And he's like, if I believe in anything, I believe in her. And I was like, well, here's a new show that I'm going to have to watch um, just because of this speech was amazing. And that's where it all started. So I like think I binged watched however many seasons were out by that point, And I haven't really looked back. 
So I've seen New Who, and then coming into this whole podcast, I had never seen any classic Who, and that's why I'm here. One of the reasons why I'm here. I'm also a girl, so that's another reason. Right. (laughs) Cool, cool. So Don? Oh, boy. Well, I was born at a very young age, (laughs) (laughs) and I kind of grew up in the middle of nowhere, like seriously. Mm -hmm. So I sort of escaped into books and television, a lot of cartoons. I kind of have a habit of slipping into silly voices, whether I even notice it or not. It's just one of those things. I personally blame Frank Welker, but I don't think I can get any money from him for it. Got into music pretty big when I was a teenager, so I'm both a terrible guitar player and a terrible bass player. Ironically enough, I think I've written almost every piece of music that we've used in our show. Oh, cool. Except for stuff we've had to use for, I think, something Riley put in. I don't remember what it was, but like we did certain like themes, the intro, the outro, the really funny Terminator ripoff (laughs) score I put behind us. That was all, all kind of fun. Um, because I just, I like the art of composition probably more than I like actually playing because when you're composing and doing stuff now, there's no clock ticking. You don't necessarily have to hit the tempo, right? You can pencil it in and then figure it out later. That to me is kind of fun. As far as Doctor Who, way back when I was really into British comedies, especially Black Adder and a girlfriend of mine introduced me to The Curse of Fatal Death. Uh, which is still probably my favorite piece of Doctor Who media, (laughs) especially when you consider it's almost like a predecessor or a portent of things to come, especially the Moffat era in terms of what happens. It's almost beat for beat, but it's short and comedic, and it both works as a follow-up to the original show and a bit of a satire. As far as getting into this, like Anthony said, we we met at a party, got along, and I get a text from going, hey, you want to be on a Doctor Who podcast? Sure, whatever. Then the challenge came of actually putting the whole thing together because we had to figure out, okay, how long is it going to be? What's our structure? (laughs) What's the name of it? And the first few episodes were getting our feet wet and trying to figure out how everything was going to work. And it's something we still have production meetings before every season. Hey, what's working? What's not? Do we need to change this? If anyone ever decides to go ahead and do a podcast of anything, I would suggest recording two or three episodes you have no intention of airing as a dry run so you can figure (laughs) out, hey, this is terrible. I should remove that rather than (laughs) you already have it going on and you need to put it out and it can avoid a lot of problems. Um, I don't know if I've answered your question, but I'm going to stop talking now. Just to add to that, poor Don basically edited the entirety of the Hartnell era for us. And those initial, I want to say six episodes, we were running at two and a half hours on the raw (laughs) recording. And Don was editing them down to about an hour to make them actually digestible. And he was an absolute hero in those (laughs) early days because there was a lot there and some tough decisions on what to cut, what to keep, and just really combing through and going, okay, this is too narrative. This needs to go. Yeah. And we had Don a habit of, all dis- of, that. of badly describing what was happening in each episode. And that was it. It was just a lot of, well, why don't they just watch it? They don't need us. Right. And we eventually got to where we could just comment on it, give a short description, and then just have a lot more fun with it. How many Sandifer mentions did you oh. put out back in the day? <laughs> uh, quite a few. Take a shot. Take a shot. I don't think we've actually mentioned Sandifer in in a while. We have I think I mentioned her maybe a season or two ago. Maybe it's been it used to be like two or three every episode. 
there was a a not too distant past mention, but it was just like a brief, brief mention. Yeah. All right. Well, so Riley. Me. All right. Uh, as a as a child, I watched <laughs> way too much television. Way too much television. Which led into a lot of film watching through television. I, for some reason, can still remember as a kid being so excited on a Sunday matinee because on television because it'd be too scary to watch at night. Catching Hammer films because they were cheap and you know easy to show on basic cable or on a broadcast channel. Through high school, I went to a private school with a bunch of nerdy guys, and we all kind of thought of each other as being like the kids from the Dead Poets Society, just without any talent, but uh, with a lot of, uh, <laughs> but a lot of love of art. And I ended up doing something completely crazy because you have to understand this was in the mid nineties and there was a show, you may have heard of it called Friends that was really popular. So if you were in high school, you would end up going to a coffee house, which makes a lot of sense because you couldn't get anywhere else. And where I lived, there was a decent amount of them in a pretty, well-trafficked place. And I came up with this crazy idea. I'm going to put out a newsletter that's just going to be like a parody newsletter, kind of like The Onion, just just to write jokes that I want to write about things that are going on. And I actually got another writer and I started printing it like real cheap. Just I had a relative who had a copier that I could just copy. So I did that for a while and that was fun. And I enjoyed just being a smart ass and making jokes. And then I went to college. Uh, that wasn't so much fun. So I dropped out and I was in a band for a while and that was fun and creative. I don't have much musical talent. I just can barely, you know, carry a tune while singing, but it was a fun experience. Really a lot of fun. It's just really exciting to perform on stage. I, that's one thing I really, really miss is being able to do something in front of people and make them smile, make them laugh, make them cheer, make them get excited. That's such a thrill that you, you know, not many people get to taste and it's a lot of fun. So I went back to school and ended up getting a minor in film studies, which was a fantastic, fantastic thing to do. Of course, I wasn't gonna get a job out of it, but it was just really, really great. And I feel like it helped me learn so much about film that I really hold to this day. Then uh, went to law school, <laughs> uh, okay. But outside of that, um, I was so happy to meet Anthony. And the first thing that came into my mind was when he asked me about, hey, you wanna do this podcast? I thought, you know, this is another opportunity to be creative again. Mm -hmm. After being through law school and stuff like that, I can't remember the last time I did that other than maybe being in the band. And so I thought about how much I missed that and how much fun it would be. And also to collaborate with people again and to put something in together with a lot of other, with other people. I don't even know if I even took a day to think about it. I don't know, Anthony, maybe it was less than that. Maybe it was a day to think about it and say yes, but that was it. And my doctor experience before then was humorous in that I was always an Anglophile for a long time, and I'd always heard of Dr. Yaw because I like science fiction, you know, and I never gave it a shot. And then I gave it a shot one time when Netflix had the streaming rights for New Who. Mm -hmm. Watch first episode, watch Rose, got about 10 minutes into it and shut it off. Fair. Months pass, months pass. I give it a second shot, and then it just clicked. Mm -hmm. And then after watching all of that, I was like, I need to know more about this. And so I started my own watch of the classic show. And I was at another thing that was so great about Anthony asking me is that I had to miss so many episodes because they were missing and I didn't have the ability to find and learn. I had to do things, horrible things like go to YouTube and see things of missing episodes. Wouldn't that, believe the terrible things he had to yes, do. Yes, <laughs> yes. 
no, no loose cannon reconstruction is available to me at that moment. I had to see the dark side. But so you didn't yeah. even have the fortitude to sit through the reconstructions, and uh, I wouldn't no. have been able to by myself either. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, that's that's about it, really. I don't know that anybody actually mentioned where you're from. I think it's relatively obvious to the listeners that Anthony is not from the same place as the rest of you. <laughs> no, he's from South Carolina. Yeah. Born yeah. <laughs> and bred. Very, very East South Carolina. Yeah. Right. So how's the barbecue in your part of South Carolina? <laughs> so uh, what brought you over here? Oh, goodness. Well, that's an Plain, interesting story. <laughs> oh, yes. That, yeah, right. <laughs> I did arrive in the U.S. by plane, but the uh, the short version of it is... <laughs> he still has the goggles. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm working on building out the the curly mustache to to go with the biplane. But um, no, the the short version of the story is I came over here for my ex-wife. Ah, gotcha. And uh, I came over on what's known as a K-1 fiancé visa. Hmm. And the I'm going to get way too legal around this and government stuff, but basically the Behind that, I had to move into the U.S. within a certain number of days of the visa being granted. And then within a certain number of days of moving to the U.S., I had to get married. And things went pretty well for a little bit until my ex decided that she didn't really want to be married anymore. Mm. And she uh, left at honestly quite a terrible time. Um, and Don was actually one of the people who helped pick up the pieces from that because he is awesome. And that's actually where his Anytime. comment about taking me to the Renaissance Festival comes in, because that's one of the things Don and, and his partner did to cheer me up. But I kind of took stock of my life at that point and thought, well, I can move back to, I, I was 27 and my professional career to date had been in the US. So I moved here more or less straight after I finished my first master's degree. And I kind of took stock and thought, well, I've built a career, I've built friendships, I own a house, I own a car. I could give all that up, move back in with my parents back in London and start again. Or I can just say, you know what? My life here wasn't dependent on her. She was the reason I was here, but I've built so much more. And I made the decision to stick around. And candidly, I'm really glad I did um, because I wouldn't have met two of my three fine co-hosts without doing that. Right. And um, I, I think just in case anyone wasn't aware from the kind of context clues in Hulanta, we're all Atlanta-based, even if some of us, and in fact, I think none of us are originally from the Atlanta area. Uh, I'm obviously a, a Londoner by birth and lived uh, in the London area for about 20 out of the first 23 years of my life. I lived for three years in a town about 30 miles west of London called Reading when I was an undergraduate. And then at the age of 23, I moved to the U.S., and I've been in Atlanta ever since. And Atlanta is not such a bad place to be. Really not, no. especially when I lived in Knoxville, Tennessee, and I came to Atlanta for school. I went to Georgia Tech, and it was also one of those decisions. I graduated, and I was like, do I want to move back to Knoxville? <laughs> no, I really don't want to move back to Knoxville. So I stayed here, and it was a much better choice. My eldest brother was like head of sales or whatever for the for the big uh, Caterpillar uh, mm. place up in Knoxville. And, and, uh, the things that he described made me think, oh, well, I'm glad it's you and not me. So. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> cool. So you're from Knoxville. Uh, Don. I grew up in Kentucky, 
Uh, lived in Tennessee, Nashville, not Knoxville. Also Clarksville for a little while. Oh, Clarksville. And about uh, uh, math is hard. A long time ago, I moved here and I'm pretty happy with it. Aside from the nightmare that is spring, in which everything <laughs> gets covered with pollen, right. um, and and summer, I am I am not a creature that thrives in the heat. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Apart from those things, it's a good town to be in. I'm just south of Birmingham, and I, I feel the same way. I grew up here and still hate it here. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I despise all the heat. and you know, You're going to be one of those. Okay. Generally, it, the people. Um, <laughs> it, beats, it, beats, it beats like three or four feet of snow and probably about $700 a month in gas. Oh, yeah. for heating your house. So yeah, that's, that's, that's anyone true. thinking about going up north, it's not cheap. <laughs> I was, I thought you're going to be one of those people that's going to have one of those park benches. He enjoyed seeing this park bench for 50 years every day and he hated everything yeah. around it. <laughs> <laughs> that would be fairly accurate. In memoriam, he hated this park and everyone in it. Oh. <laughs> so, Riley, where are you from? Oh, well, I'm from Savannah, Georgia. <laughs> But that's not, I never had, I never had the accent, actually. Funny story. I never really, I mean, give me in front of my parents, an accent might come out. And and that's only if like we start talking and get like really into something. But I actually didn't really speak much as a child and uh, went to a speech therapist. And my guess is that they were from out of town. That was actually, that's something Riley and I have in common because I grew up in a, a very small, very rural Kentucky town. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And literally every year, I would get a, a new a teacher, and they would go. So, how are you? How well are you adjusting to the move? And I'm like, what what move? What are you talking about? I grew up here. I'm like, well, you, you talk funny. But no, yeah. I don't. But I, thanks for that. I mean, <laughs> I don't have a very strong Southern accent either. My parents, my mom was raised in Buffalo, New York, and my dad is from Camden, so right outside of Philly. Yeah. I don't have a Philly accent, but I don't have a Southern draw, so. I don't know what happened. I think my parents were just like, you can't have a Southern accent. They didn't really, I don't know. But what's, what's interesting, as I listen to all of your voices when it's my turn to edit, there are certain things oh. each of you do that I hear that are very, very Southern. <laughs> and it's not something you would pick up on unless you're literally listening to someone say the same thing repeatedly because you're listening to it again and again going, does that work? Does, does, does that phrase make sense? I'm going to cut that word. That word doesn't sound right. But you start picking up on everyone's vocal quirks, including the point of Julie does that with her voice. That's the only Southern thing she does or, or what have you. It's really interesting to kind of hear it in that context. Shut well, my cone. I had no idea. I'm going to out me and uh, uh, Don's age right now. We're both children of the 80s. Yep. And I can tell you now, being a person who watched too much television back then and absorbed way too much pop culture, it's gotten, I believe, better now. But in the 80s, you know, a Southern accent was something that was usually put onto a character to make them look like they're an idiot. Yes. And so I will, I'm not lying when I say that as I grew up and realized that my my accent wasn't very strong, was not something I was upset about. And that's kind of a shame too, because like all accents, 
there are good versions of that accent and there are bad versions of that accent. There are, there are Southern accents that sound nice and some that sound terrible. Yeah. They're highlights certain things. It's it's just a shame that as a, you know, in pop culture that those things can influence people into wanting to try to get away from certain things. And what's, what's interesting about you saying that Riley is, and I don't mean to, meander too far down the accent path but growing up in britain there were two american accents and maybe three american accents you'd hear on tv you know you had your inner city which makes someone sound like they're from the bronx you have your southern which is your kind of hillbilly kind of stupid character which i mean living here i know that's not the case but that's the stereotype as riley kind of mentioned and then you have your nondescript attempt at avoiding a regional accent which you hear on newscasters Uh. over here Boston didn't make it into the mix. <laughs> Not so much. The the only um the only Boston accent we ever heard. We had a TV presenter in the UK whose name was Lloyd Grossman. Did a lot of food TV. He was the original presenter of MasterChef, and he was from Boston. But his accent is a bit weird because he'd lived in England for so long. So you had like this little Boston twang to this British accent. It was it was really weird. But that was our real only kind of exposure to a Boston accent. My experience that way was was actually similar to Riley's growing up, watching a lot of television in the 80s. And I realized actually relatively young that I wanted to be a teacher and that I didn't want to live in Alabama, which I still... Sorry. <laughs> One out of two. That's something. Yeah, yeah. yeah right, right. So um, I thought, well, I had the influence of my mom not having been originally from the South in capital letters. I mean, she was born in Oklahoma, but between the ages of seven and 10, she lived in 28 different states. So she had very much a non-accent until the last few years of her life when it started to get more and more Southern. So I had that influence, but I also watched a lot of like Tom Brokaw and whatnot. And I was like, you know, I want to sound like a pro if I ever leave the state. So I, you know, when I get tired, Julie, you said when you get excited or maybe it was, uh, mm-hmm. on, when you get excited, it, it ramps up for me. It's when I get tired, all of a sudden I start speaking very slowly, <laughs> things start running together. But my wife and I moved out to Oklahoma for two years to do a master's degree at Oklahoma state and, uh, everywhere, everywhere we went, it was now where are y'all from again? <laughs> well, we're in Alabama. Then why ain't you got an accent? You know, <laughs> And then, I, and then the and then the lady at the bank who said, "Well, nobody's really from Alabama, are they?" And I was like, "No, <laughs> no. Um, nobody." Vast, from- desolate wasteland, <laughs> like <laughs> Canada. <laughs> <laughs> well, my answer, my answer, just like totally straight faced, because this is the way I roll. Is I, I was like, "No, there was actually a mass migration from Tennessee in the eighteen hundreds. Um, literally, <laughs> all of us are from Tennessee." Um, so- <laughs> you want to claim Tennessee? Are you sure about that? No, no. But at the time, it was the quickest thing I could think of. And she said, "Really." I was like, no. Yeah. Yeah. I feel you on that. In all honesty, I find accents and particularly the ability to code switch between accents fascinating. I personally find when I go home, my accent will shift depending on the crowd I'm in. So if I'm with my parents at a slightly fancy society type dinner, my accent will go posher. I go and watch my football team or soccer team. And suddenly I'm dropping my T's and I'm talking a little <laughs> bit rougher because, you know, got to watch the Arsenal and, you know, got to <laughs> fit in with the crowd. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's it it's interesting how people do that, myself included. And I definitely find I, I, I always remember a time getting off um, 
a flight after visiting the UK and my ex-wife picking me up and she meets me at arrivals and I start talking. My, my bags have been sent on to a different flight or something. And she just looks at me and I'm like, what? And she goes, I have no idea what you just said because it was in such a heavy British accent. <laughs> I always find that so fascinating how people will pick up more of an accent when they're around certain people or in certain circumstances. And I, I don't know why I find that so interesting. I just do. My daughter and I were actually kind of talking about that the other day. Tom Holland was, I, I watched an interview with him and Zendaya when No Way Home was out and uh, he slid into his American accent and couldn't get out of it, which is, <laughs> which is really, really strange. But I also, I remembered in growing up, which I did once, reading it in, I don't know, TV Guide, I think, uh, a, an interview with Alan Young, who was Wilbur on Mr. Ed and who was the voice of Scrooge McDuck in the original DuckTales cartoon. And he said he would go home at night and about two hours after being home, his wife would start yelling at him because he was still speaking with Scrooge's accent. <laughs> <laughs> oh, That's sorry. outstanding. Trapped in <laughs> yeah. Scottish. Uh, well, in in that strange Scottish that, that yes, that. duck Scottish. It's a very <laughs> specific part of Scotland, right? Um, it's it's a bit foul there. Um, <laughs> cool. So, um, for each of you, and I think a couple of you broached on this just a little bit. Why specifically Doctor Who? What did that do to capture your imagination? Anthony, you can start. I frequently describe as Doctor Who as being my first love. It's one of my earliest memories. When I was a small child, my father, who had been a Doctor Who fan since 1963, came home one day with three Doctor Who stories on VHS. Mm. And I still remember exactly which ones they were. They were The Mind Robber, The Time Warrior, and The Ark in Space. We've done two of three of those on the podcast, or at least we've recorded two or three. And... I found the Ark in Space at the time too scary to watch as a child, but the Mind Robber and the Time Warrior really caught my imagination. And for just about every single birthday and Christmas after that, I was bought more Doctor Who on VHS as things were available and just became more and more obsessed. It got to the early 2000s and DVD started becoming the big thing and I started upgrading my collection. Again, birthdays, Christmas, my allowance, any other money I managed to earn somehow. Hey, we need someone to do the yard. Hey, son, do you want to do it? We'll give you X amount. Yes, I can buy another Doctor Who DVD with that. Sure, I would love to pull out all the weeds in the yard. And in the early 2000s, my obsession had become so great, I discovered this wonderful yet also terrible thing called online fandom. <laughs> Yeah. And <laughs> I started an ominous out, music sting under when he said that. that bum, would be good. Bum, bum. <laughs> Terrible thing called online fandom. And um, I signed up to the, at the time, the BBC Doctor Who message boards, the official ones. And that led me also onto what was at the time Outpost Gallifrey. And being an enterprising. 14 year old, I kind of got fed up with the restrictions on those, the fact that you couldn't curse and you can be as vulgar as you wanted to be because I was an edgy teenager man who listened to heavy metal. Right. And I wanted to be able to drop F bombs everywhere and found kind of a group of like minded individuals. And I actually set up my own Doc 2 forum called Planet Scarrow. I ran that for about 10 ish years and it was very, very clicky. There was a group of about 
I don't know, 40 of us who all became friends outside of the internet and hung out every few months in person in London. And we eventually started recording our own fan audios because we were huge, huge nerds. And that was really my first introduction to putting my voice out there. And it all got rather silly. And then I went off to college and kind of got focused on actually academic stuff because I was far more interested in that once I got to college than I ever was in high school. But Doc 2's always been there for me. It's been the one constant in my life, you know, through breakups, through family schisms. Doctor Who has always been a great comfort. It's always been something that I know I can watch and rewatch and watch some of my favorite episodes and really feel comforted by. Again, it's it's one of those things where if I feel lost, it's something I always retreat back to. And I think for me, in that gap after I finished my MBA, it was a very easy thing to go, you know what, I'd quite like to do another rewatch of this entire show. And I'd quite like to drag some friends along with me and talk about it. And there are a couple of other podcasts that have done similar things that to some extent I took inspiration from. Specific shout out to my friends at Flight Through Entirety, which is a group of Australians who Christopher H. Bidmead, a former um, script editor of the show, once famously described as the most rambling Doctor Who podcast on the internet. (laughs) They were a a huge, huge influence. My friend Brendan was one of the hosts of that. And um, hearing him do it kind of made me go, I want to do this and do my own take on it as well. This this is, um, you know, I think I can do something a bit different and with a different group of people with a different perspective. Again, it's just one of those things of comfort and feeling a little lost and thinking I can bring some people together and, and do something rather fun with it. I realize I probably rambled on that, but does that kind of answer your question? That oh, it absolutely answers and, and then some, but not in a bad way. So who's your doctor? Ooh, well, I'm going to get laughed at for this because um, my favorite doctor, who was the incumbent when I became a fan, although I didn't know it from those initial three VHS tapes, was Sylvester McCoy. Okay. I adore the seventh doctor. I adore that slightly darker aspect you start to see in him. And I think he's that, very typical kind of you underestimate him as a bit of a clown but then he is ruthless and can really sort out the problem right so julie you did say kind of how you came to doctor who but do you want to elaborate um so after i had seen that initial shot and went back and binged watched what i could i also convinced my sister to watch it i had actually introduced my sister to it hence why Anthony mentioned meeting me. He mentioned my sister as well. We found Timegate. Now, when we found it, I had introduced my sister to Doctor Who. She enjoyed it more than I did. So I went because of Stargate. Stargate was like my baby. I love Stargate. And I was just like, this is amazing. Everything about this is great. And she was like, oh man, Doctor Who, this is amazing. This is great. So the whole irony is now I do the Doctor Who podcast. What helps with Doctor Who for me as well is I enjoy sci-fi things, but I also do love British things. Now it's going to steer more drama than comedy. So I'm talking about your Shakespeare. I enjoy like the entire Hollow Crown series that was done um, a couple years back. Uh, any Pride and Prejudice, since any Jane Austen, I'll watch. Downton Abbey, I'm re-watching it right now because uh, I adore that show. So it kind of pulls in the sci-fi things that I like, the British things that I like, and wraps it up all into one show. Very cool. The new Downton Abbey movie, it's it's interesting because I watched like an episode or two and just didn't, it didn't jive with me. But the new movie looks great. 
So I kind of want to go back and, and just watch through so I know what's going on. <laughs> so I may have to jump into that. So Don? For me, Doctor Who was for the longest time, just something that existed in the background of science fiction. Um, when I was growing up, I was a big fan of Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy books. So I knew that he had been a showrunner or whatever the term was at the time, I'm sure Anthony knows, for Doctor Who. So it was just kind of there. And I would see in little books of, of science fiction, they would have this guy with this big hair and this enormous scarf. I'm like, well, that's kind of interesting. But I'd never really watched it until, like I said, I was introduced to a parody of it. And then I think I got into the new series just randomly. I think Partners in Crime was on at a friend's house. And I'm like, wow, this is really good. This is entertaining. It's fun. And then I wound up just binging everything up until that point and then kept up with it. I had some some kind of interest in the old series. And so it, it was a good thing when Anthony said, hey, you want to do this? I'm like, sure. So we did. And as far as my doctor, well, obviously I always see Rowan Atkinson because that's how I roll. <laughs> but of the classic doctors and even probably the new ones, I got to go with Troughton. Did we did we talk about your Dr. Julie? No, we 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 did skip over that. Um I break it out into two mainly because I haven't gotten through all the old uh, all the classic doctors yet. Mm -hmm. Right now, Troughton is the one who's winning, but I've only seen 3 up to this point, so there's time left on that one. And for new who, I actually might go with Eccleston because I think what he was able to accomplish in one season is actually phenomenal. Have you listened to his big finishes? Not yet. They're it's on my fantastic. list. They're, oh, I said it. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even mean to. They, they are, they are. Uh, they're wonderful. They really are. Riley. Um, I think what makes Who special, like I said before, as a child of 80s television, you lived and you raised in a universe of very special episodes and events with no consequence. I remember being into sci-fi watching Star Trek II, really loving that. I still love that movie. Spock dies. Spoilers. And then, <laughs> damn it. boom, he's back. Very nice. I mean, just immediately. It seems like television was like that. And media was like that for a very long time, at least from my perspective, from what I had watched. And then, as I mentioned before, always an Anglophile, like science fiction. I've always heard of Doctor Who. I remember, actually, and I've mentioned this on our show before, my first true experience of Doctor Who was being a kid, absorbing television, staying up past my bedtime, turning on Georgia Public Broadcasting because it was everything else had the news. Ugh. Mm. When you're a kid who wants to watch that and it's getting late and then, oh, this is cool. What are this crazy colors? Oh no, there's this giant cutout head of a Tom Baker face coming towards the screen. This is scary. What is this? And this crazy music. I'm, uh, I'm not kidding that I actually turned it off and ran upstairs as a child. <laughs> the Britishness of it, the charm that it had pulled me in, and then the drama pulled me in. And then after watching all, all of New Who, watching a lot of on our current journey with Classic Who, Doctor Who is special, not only because of its longevity, which is something that Anthony hinted to, is that it's something that can be there for you. Mm -hmm. It's something that is dependable, something that you can, you know, that will always be there. It's how the show handles loss. And it's special because it's not just a show like, because everyone got so excited, Game of Thrones, oh my God, they're killing characters left and right. You don't know who's left. I'm not discrediting them. That was well done. But with Doctor Who, they've been getting rid of characters, but they're also not, 
the same type of show that Game of Thrones is. Doctor Who still is like, tries to be optimistic, tries to say life is good. It's, it's a life affirming show. Game of Thrones is a high, like high stakes drama. And Doctor Who is like, one minute we're joking around, Next minute, something tragic happens and it actually has consequence. It actually sticks around. And we deal with how these characters deal with that loss and that sorrow. And I just think that is so amazing for something that always gets sometimes downplayed as being, oh, it's a British show for kids. Right. And I'm like, well, that's amazing because I wish we had a show over here that, for kids that could like handle such mature subjects and do it so well. That's why Doctor Who is something that I find amazing and something that's always close to me sure and i, I want to draw on something in particular that you said there riley and that's the comparison of how game of thrones matches up to doctor who in terms of dealing with loss doctor who has killed off main companions so rarely or main characters so so rarely that when it does it has this huge impact whereas you look at something like game of thrones and it feels like a significant character is killed off almost every week and it dampens it it loses the impact as a result and i think that's a really interesting point you raised there riley well and sometimes the stuff that's more heartbreaking isn't the deaths that happen it's just the separation Mm -hmm. it's when people are are left behind or you know what happened with donna like donna still makes me cry almost every single time it's it's sad um it leads to the possibility that maybe Donna will come back. Okay, 13 years down the line. <laughs> nudge, nudge, wink, wink. <laughs> I mean, I, I love Donna, but I'm much more excited about Wilf coming back. Uh, I know. Wilf, Wilf <laughs> is my man. He better have those antlers uh, because I'm ready for Christmas. He reminds me of my own grandfather who passed away 24 years ago. And yeah, I'm very excited for that return for that reason. So that, again, I don't keep you all night. Let's talk podcast. The quality of the podcast has always been relatively high and gotten obviously better as you guys have done and learned and and whatnot. So starting with kind of individually, what are your different rigs? I see that you all have large microphones, except for Julie. Uh, mine's they just, have a large one, but it's just further away. Gotcha. You got a, a Blue Yeti. Yes. So. I have a Blue Yeti. Um, I had upgraded. I had a snowball first, then I went to the blue. What helps me, I, I don't know how everyone else's places are rigged up. I always try to choose a room that's a little bit smaller and then it has carpet to help with just dampening sound. I don't usually use much else more than that. I think it works out pretty well. Anthony? I also have the Yeti X. Um, I have it attached to an arm. I have a, it's not a dedicated podcasting room, but it's a dedicated office. So I do my day job in here as well. But again, it's a relatively smaller room, carpeted. I've actually got some sound paneling on one wall. That wasn't actually strictly for podcasting, although it helped. My partner and I's offices are adjacent to each other. And I'm on a significant number of calls for my day job. And she was getting really, really fed up of hearing me nattering away all day, every day. So we installed some muffling panels to help with that. But it also helps with podcasting. Actually, it's kind of funny. We talk about that one trick I kind of picked up from some suggestions Don made was to help with the sound quality. I actually do my laundry the day that we're recording and have that up on racks behind me to help absorb some of the echo and extra sound. Oh, Oh, and the other thing that we learned along the way was to turn your AC off. 
while yes. you're recording. Yes, Riley. <laughs> we learned that lesson, didn't we? It was me as well, Don, to be fair. Uh, once I moved into this office, the AC kind of blows down almost where I sit for podcasting. And the first time Don picked up, there was this whooshing noise on my soundtrack. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's got to be the AC unit. I'll that's that's that why on our on our summer recordings, if you hear me getting kind of like floaty and dizzy, that's that's why. <laughs> Same here, but it's off. <laughs> okay, since since Don started out as the techie, we'll go to Riley next. You could tell me this was a uh, tin can and string, and I would I might believe you. I'm not very tech aware. I am just <laughs> just trying to do whatever I can to make sure that. Poor Don didn't suffer too much at the beginning of all this. Mm-hmm. That was the main thing. <laughs> Unfortunately, I also live right next to a busy intersection. And luckily, I don't think too much has bled through. But this is a blue snowball. I can't even remember what I started with. But when Anthony upgraded, I got his hand-me-down. And so I put that in there. That's about it. Like I said, I am not tech savvy. I just try to do whatever I can to minimize the, the pain as much as possible. Now, Don? I uh, see so you got the nifty, cool Sure mic. I have, I have a Sure. It's an MV7. It's not the super cool professional broadcasting, but it works. Uh, I run that into a nice little cheapy Behringer audio interface. And I record in basically my office, but I have put up a little bit of acoustic treatment to try and help with the echoes. But really the microphone that you use isn't that important so much as being in a room that could absorb a lot of the echoes and, and that kind of thing. So what do you record into besides, I mean, past the Behringer? Oh, past the Behringer, oh, it goes straight into my Mac. Okay. Logic. As far as, uh, we started out, okay, we're going to go into long tech details. <laughs> so all you guys can take a nap now. Perfect. During the first couple seasons, we were editing in Logic. Everyone was recording their separate audio into Audacity. Okay. And I was recording a, a master of the Skype phone call plus my own audio separate. We would sync that up into Logic and then do the editing from there. Logic is a good tool and I liked using it, but I realized that I wanted to be able to share the work of this. Mm -hmm. So we eventually moved over to Reaper, Mm -hmm. which is so cheap. It's almost free, but it's really good. It can be free if you don't want to pay for it. It can be if you don't want to pay for it, but I don't want to besmirch their product in any way. No, no. So I've I've gone through enough upgrades that I've paid for it twice. So I had to also, once we got Julie out of the pit that she was in our first few episodes to record in, things got a lot better. I don't even know. I I don't remember actually doing much to change it, but somehow it worked itself out. We adjusted your mic settings and a few other things, I think. Kind of crazy. I don't remember. It was a long time ago. So I had to teach myself how to use Reaper which it's the best thing about Reaper is you can configure it to do anything. And the worst part about Reaper is you can configure it to do anything, but you have to figure it out. So I developed a lot of presets to automatically, like, you know, silence things. Let's apply compression here, do that. And we essentially do the same thing where everyone records their audio separately. I record my voice and the master of the conversation. We sync everything up put it into Reaper and I'll do a couple of things that will remove the silence because sometimes we have long gaps where nobody's talking and squish that together. So we don't have to edit, edit all that. And we now have a rotating schedule of, you know, who gets to edit it. Right. And once I taught everyone, Hey, here's how you edit stuff. 
we had a, a few bumps, which is completely to be expected. And now I think overall things go a lot smoother. I actually am going to be taking a facilitator class and it's specifically focused on facilitating things like virtually. And there's a place that I can go in and it will record like voice ticks and all this other sure. stuff. We have this program for it. And I was like, that's probably going to help me not just to work. Yeah, right. We will. If you we'll haven't be... been able to recognize voice ticks by now. Well, but what, three years into this, it's, it's so easy to recognize them, but to then stamp them out is the hard yeah. part. It's like, I know I do it, but like then to be like, oh, we've counted for you and here's like 10 in one minute. It's like, oh, okay, that's how often it is. That would be awkward. Yeah. No doubt. <laughs> so, Mike, just for your edification in our editing process, we do the best we can to cut out our own vocal tics. <laughs> right. And we all have them. I am um, in our Julie likes. You know. A lot. Oh, likes. I like. Uh, I like a lot. Yeah. Riley has a tendency to gold bloom. <laughs> mm-hmm. And Don, Don you, is the best. Yeah, you yes. have the fewest. You occasionally repeat a word, but it's not yes. very often. I also Shatner occasionally about these weird pauses. <laughs> I do that too, though. I am an uh, and I I noticed the first couple of podcasts that I I smack a lot, like yeah, you know that sort of mm. thing, and and not just in between or when I'm about to um, which is fairly common that I'll do it then, but also like just when I open my mouth to say a word. And so like I have to trim the very front off of a lot of words. We didn't do it for a long time. And then all of a sudden, like two or three of us all started doing it all at once. I'm like, how Uh did that happen? And then we stopped and now it occasionally happens. You've spent so much virtual time together that your behaviors are all. Well, Particularly in 2020, when, you know, aside from partners, we probably spent more time with each other than anyone else. Right. Uh, or in late 2021, when, what was our recording schedule like oh for God. November we, and December? We were weekly. <laughs> Daily? We were weekly. <laughs> Pretty sure it was every day. <laughs> yeah, Sorry, it was a lot. We like to bother Anthony about that slave driver. <laughs> Y'all could have said no. On the listening end, we love it. Thank you. And going back to our original conversation about speech and vocal tics, for those first couple seasons, I was telling everyone, hey, you keep doing this. Can you can you not do that? Like, okay, yeah, sure. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Once everyone had to edit their own audio, I kept getting these individual messages going, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I didn't know I did that. <laughs> or I'm going to kill so-and-so if they don't stop doing this. That was, I, I was definitely I, the one calling people I, out. I wasn't going to say that. but <laughs> That yeah. was me. So, I actually think I got some texts from Julie saying, oh my God, I'm going to kill you. Yes. And I was I, going, do I need were, to go into hiding? Person. Oh yeah, no, I messaged you, Don, but don't worry. I also messaged him. Like, I'm not <laughs> yeah, going to hide it from him. I definitely got it like straight from the horse's mouth as well. I'm it wasn't still just mad that you Don. still do things on paper and then turn pages. Sorry. Yeah, but he'll click his mouse otherwise too. So there's just, you just can't help some people. You know, Don's got a it. silent mouse. I mean, come on. <laughs> Don's also right. got to get some credit here. Don, while doing all of that, learning Reaper, he also put together a fantastic tutorial <laughs> oh, yeah. on PowerPoint to teach a Luddite like me how to edit audio. And I still use it every single time. Just I, I always pull it up whenever I have it's my turn to edit. And yeah, I mean, I've received a lot of teaching 
And that PowerPoint is excellent. And if I think anyone that wants to know how to edit on Reaper, they could read that without any experience and they would know how to do it. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. And then, then we do a few additional things once that base edit is done. Um, one of us will normally QA someone else's work just to make sure you know everything that should be cut has been cut and, and double check the work before it's finally ready to actually be published and that, that someone is usually you Andy, and we appreciate it because you're and, and unless i have done the edit at which mm -hmm. point i normally ask riley to listen through my work yeah um, make sure we don't mute anybody for the entire episode just a, just a simple qc check yeah if you go back and listen to some of our early episodes where our deadlines were so tight there wasn't time to do that it was a <laughs> it's ready to go let's just get it out there are definitely times in those early episodes where there's like five seconds where someone clearly should be talking and they're not because they've been accidentally muted. Oh, wow. Because originally we had to mute every slice individually. Yes. We don't have to do that anymore. Things have gotten a lot easier. Yeah. We found ways to automate. Well, I say we. Don has found ways <laughs> to automate it and make life easier for whomever is actually doing the editing. I'm still not to the point where I can trust myself to trust the computer to cut out silences i still want to go in and do it by hand it scares me that i'll lose something you know the nice thing is because i have someone else wrote these amazing scripts i just found them and actually paid for them because they were that good you can set the thresholds but then once it's done because you're going to be going through it and quality controlling it anyway you can go okay that shouldn't have been cut off and you can move everything over and then replace it so it doesn't just take all control away from you. It just makes the whole process so much smoother. And in all honesty, what Don has been able to do in terms of figuring out audio quality and so on is far beyond what my original vision was. My original vision was we'll get on Skype, we'll record the conversation and just hope for the best and we'll put out the least bad product that we can. And Don coming in and saying, well, actually, I think... I've got a way where if we can all record our own isolated audio, we can tweak everyone's, get them sounding really good, avoid any latency on the connection, put it together in post-production. It's not always perfect, but it's a lot better than just recording the master audio off of Skype and hoping for the best with that. The idea with that, I'm sorry to interrupt, is I think we're very lucky in that we're in an age to where Anyone can record and make their own product, be it video, be it audio, whatever. My admittedly kind of control freak perfectionist tendency leads me to believe if someone is going to take the time to listen to what we're doing with so many other choices out there, I want it to be as good as it can possibly be. Sure. As I said, while it goes far beyond what my original idea and vision was, I'm totally in love with what Don has been able to do with this and the sound quality we've been able to achieve because of all of the effort Don has gone to to go ahead and research this and really figure yeah. it out. Because one thing I think it was briefly mentioned is that Don does take everything when we first record and he puts everything together, but he also runs a lot of the filtering out the background noise and all those other things. I know it's in his PowerPoint deck. That stuff still goes above my head because like Riley, I'm not that great <laughs> on the technology side of things. So the fact that he's lifted a lot of that burden off and we can focus more on 
you know, cutting out things and even potentially adding in music or, or some other sound effects makes it a lot mm-hmm. easier on us. So. I'm going to keep the Dawn praise train going because... <laughs> like seeing me turn red and match my shirt yeah (laughs) because you can go onto your podcasting app pull up so many different podcasts and i'm talking podcasts that are really well listened to with high listenership and it is crazy how bad some of the they sound and not just that but like the fact that we work on removing vocal tics I remember one time, I'm so used of now editing those out, I went back to a podcast that I really liked, and I almost blew my brains out with how bad <laughs> they were repeating themselves with vocal tics over and over and over again. And I said, I'm so glad we're not doing that to people. <laughs> I know it takes us time on editing, but I'm really glad that Don had like set that statement like, all right, we're going to do this. We're going to make it at this level of quality. We don't want to have people having to listen to you knows, you knows, you knows, arms, 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 over and over again. The thing that really bugs me now on anything, whether it's podcasting, whether it's you hear it in some music and you hear it in a lot of places, is audible breathing. Even if it's just an inhale mm-hmm. between words, that bugs me. And I'm just like, why am I like this? Because <laughs> this is, breathing is something everyone does, but hearing it... I was listening to some Big Finish a couple of weeks ago and heard Katie Manning doing it. I'm like, why did the producer not cut that? Why did they not trim that out? I find it, I'm still kind of, I don't know, finding my sea legs in terms of like what I want mine to sound like. You guys do a great job of making it sound very natural, though you are cutting out all those things. And that's kind of something I'm striving to do as well and kind of take you guys as an inspiration that way. Jamie Linnell with that audio files when talks about how he at the outset was cutting out literally everything that was a problem. And he said it completely sounded unnatural, but I've, I've found myself even at times because I do talk in fast clips. Sometimes I'll go in and stretch out words or spaces between words to make myself sound more natural than I do when I'm normally talking. And there are definitely instances where you can't cut certain things out when people run into words they'll do like so like they just go right into it it's really hard to get some of those so a few of those get left in (laughs) okay don (laughs) i can see Andy going "Mm, i wonder who she's talking about oh no i definitely do that occasionally because i'll be like if uh this and i'm like i've literally just run from if uh into this all of those run together you can't easily cut that out yeah so that does happen on occasion and having a few in there isn't bad and it does make it sound natural, mm-hmm. um, but it's really frustrating sometimes because I've listened to podcasts where they've come out and said, you know, we thought about doing that, but we decided not to. We want everything to sound natural. And I'm like, but you say, you know, probably about 25 times in the span of 15 minutes. And that's bothersome. And for that so- matter, if it doesn't sound natural, it's because you're not editing properly. Right. Like what Anthony was saying about the breathing, very important. You cut out the breath, you're still going to leave the space where the breath occurred. Mm-hmm. Maybe not the full length, maybe at max cut out half of it. It still gives the impression of a breath being taken. It keeps the speech natural, but it doesn't just sound like, okay, sudden awkward silence. If you watch a lot of YouTube, which I do, you'll develop an ear for bad cut like that. 
where the person will talk for literally five minutes and yet you can hear like the words kind of slamming together where they've tried to cut out all of their pauses. That's what sounds unnatural. Mm -hmm. That said, I do want to give a shout out to those who do deliberately bad cuts because they are definitely (laughs) out there and strive to make it sound unnatural. And even bigger props to those who do that with video and you see them like, you know, just jolt across the screen because that's so clear and Either they're really terrible at what they do, or it's incredibly deliberate, but either way, it's a stroke of genius. I choose to believe that's an intentional stylistic choice. Well, I will say that for a while I had thought, and I may yet do this when I roll around to like my second bank of 10 episodes or whatever, but I thought that I might would like to put this on YouTube and it'll, it'll go up relatively straightforward, just like the podcast itself does. But if I expand that into doing other things, I did happen to watch a lot of tutorials about how to make your YouTube video interesting and get followers and that sort of thing. And yes, jump cuts are definitely like not just taught, they're insisted upon. That's a thing that you have to do in order to get people to watch, which is not true because I watch a lot of YouTube channels that don't do that. But yeah, it's a big deal. We do have our own wildly success, wildly unsuccessful YouTube channel. <laughs> and we know that I, people go to watch some episodes that they're not there for Doctor Who. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll, leave it, we'll leave it there. I, I, and you can always tell because they'll watch like five seconds of it before realizing it's not what they're looking for and the episode on the crusade that happens to be titled barbara in bondage is um (laughs) is is definitely not what they're looking for in that and i'm kind of wondering why are you looking for this on youtube yeah (laughs) but um you know the world is a strange place we would be lying if we said that we did not intentionally choose our titles to be a bit fun a little bit silly and a little bit risque I remember at the very beginning, I was a little bit like anti that, like there was the one towards the very beginning and it was Susan loves scissoring. And I was like, guys, are you you sure this is where we want to go with this? And now I'm probably like one of the worst culprits. So (laughs) that is, I love that title. I love (laughs) A a lot of people do. Yes. Yeah. I, the, the other one, but only, um, for, but only for ten seconds on YouTube. As, as <laughs> the other one that a lot of people misread. The I think, one? No, no, uh, it, it it wasn't something that was like. I, I think from Don's okay. perspective, it was probably a little deliberate. But Dido by Gaslight, you add an extra letter into Dido, uh, and it gives a uh, very different impression. And a number of people online who are like, oh my God, I misread that the first time I saw it. I'm trying to tap in to that that steampunk pervert market. (laughs) Yes. I thank you guys so much for taking your time out to chat with me a little bit. This was, uh, as much as anything, selfishly a chance for me to get to jump in and and just kind of talk to you guys a bit. Thanks for having us, Mike. Yeah, I was going to say, thank you so much for having us. This has been an absolute pleasure and we look forward to this coming out. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Take care. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. So as you can see, the Watchers are a very kind of affable, knowledgeable, and with it sort of group. They have some pretty definite feelings about how things should be based on their own experiences in the kind of mechanical side of the creative arts and film and in music. And I kind of love that about them, that they have those strong opinions and they can back them up with some actual real world knowledge. 
but they're just fun to listen to. And it's, it's like kind of sitting around with a bunch of buds when they come on every other week. Or in the case of the bonus episodes, sometimes we're lucky enough to get an episode every week for uh, a month or something like that. So it's just really cool. What was said was said, and you can go back and hear more if you want to hear it again, which I would say that I've listened to most of this conversation two or three times now, and I'm still giggling at various times and that sort of thing, so it's pretty enjoyable. As always, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Mike Casey Composer, or you can email me at MikeCaseyComposer at iCloud.com. Shoot me a message if you have any questions, thoughts, ideas, concerns, issues, or confessions. I'd love to hear from you and to hear where maybe you'd like the podcast to go. Our next guest is a local favorite of mine and an up-and-coming artist in his own right, so I'm super excited for you to hear from him, and I'm not going to spoil who that is, but if you keep a watch on the socials, then you'll probably see pretty soon. Thanks to the watchers for their time, and I hope this is not the last that you hear from them. I hope you go and check them out. Until next time, bye-bye, 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 bye-bye.